This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. What do Hurricanes Andrew and Katrina, 9-11, and the Oklahoma City bombing all have in common? The cleanup for all these disasters was handled by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. It's a federal agency that provides aid when a natural disaster has occurred, like a devastating flood or hurricane. It also manages the aftermath of man-made disasters, like an act of terrorism. FEMA may have its flaws, but on the whole, it's been a positive force in helping Americans recover from some of the worst disasters in our nation's history. But FEMA's involvement in the disasters we mentioned and others may be far more complex than we were led to believe. Some say FEMA might not be the solution to disasters, but the cause of them. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated. Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Many people ask us how they can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. Today, we're talking about FEMA. Some call it a shadow government, alluding to the fact that it was created by a presidential executive order, not through Congress. Because of this, FEMA has the power to suspend laws, relocate entire populations, and detain citizens without warrants. FEMA's history of hidden agendas has led conspiracy theorists to believe the agency has set up hundreds of secret detention camps, or, as some call them, death camps, across the United States. They believe these to be located on decommissioned military bases and financed by a group of extremely wealthy, influential elite. Under the guise of helping Americans in crisis, FEMA is alleged to have established these hidden camps for one ominous reason, to detain and possibly kill American citizens who don't conform to the New World Order. The New World Order is a conspiracy theory unto itself. Many conspiracy theorists believe those in power are working towards the establishment of a global one-world government that will eliminate anyone who doesn't conform. Using its vast power and resources, FEMA will manufacture disasters and national crises. This way, the agency can declare martial law, giving it the authority to round up hundreds of thousands of American citizens and throw them in these detention camps, squashing any dissent as the new world order rises to power. This week, we'll discuss the history of FEMA and lay the groundwork for the controversies surrounding both the agency itself and its alleged secret detention camps. Next week, we'll explore whether these death camps are real and the deeper implications for our future, if they are. But first, let's take a look at the historical context in which the country's emergency management and civil defense organizations evolved. For that, we need to go back to the year 1803, when a series of fires swept through Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These fires completely devastated the town. In response, Congress passed legislation that provided relief for the town's merchants. This was the Congressional Act of 1803, and it is considered the first type of national disaster legislation ever passed in the U.S. Congress would do this many more times in the following decades, providing specific emergency management services during natural or man-made disasters. Communities affected by the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, the hurricane that leveled Galveston, Texas in 1900, and the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 all received FEMA aid. By the 1930s, the idea of federal disaster relief was increasingly popular. Federal assistance was considered desperately necessary during the Great Depression, when 25% of Americans were out of work and an estimated 2 million were homeless. The U.S. government incorporated disaster relief as part of its wide-reaching legislation to rebuild the economy. With the Emergency Relief Appropriation Act of 1935, President Roosevelt authorized almost $5 million to implement work relief programs, which gave Americans jobs funded by the U.S. government. The aim was to alleviate the pressures of the Great Depression and prevent another economic crisis in the future. 
By the middle of the 1930s, it was felt that more formal laws were needed, and federal funding was set up for the reconstruction of public facilities, highways, and bridges that had been damaged by natural disasters. But FEMA really had its beginnings in 1950, when President Harry Truman created the Federal Civil Defense Administration, or FCDA. This was an agency specifically created to provide emergency aid and assistance to communities affected by disasters. At the same time, the FCDA and the president were given special emergency powers in the event of a national crisis. This was in part because the national crisis on everyone's minds in the 1950s was not an earthquake or a hurricane, but a nuclear attack. World War II had ended only five years earlier, during which time the U.S. had developed and deployed atomic bombs. After the war, other countries began developing and testing nuclear bombs, including the Soviet Union, which was, at the time, considered the number one enemy and rival of the United States. It felt like a time of crisis to the American public, which might be why there wasn't more outcry about the fact that the FCDA wasn't created through a vote by Congress, but by an executive order. It's quite a use of presidential power. It is. President Truman later said that the agency gave the United States, quote, the basic framework for preparations to minimize the effects of an attack on our civilian population and to deal with the immediate emergency conditions which such an attack could create, end quote. The New York Times stated the act directed the, quote, federal government to provide leadership to states and communities in developing arrangements to protect civilian life and property, against possible enemy attack by atomic bombs, biological or bacteriological warfare, or any other technique, end quote. With threats like that, it's no wonder they gave so much power over to the federal government. Exactly. They were worried about massive and widespread disasters only the highest national authority would have the information and foresight to address. And the FCDA took disaster preparation seriously. They produced radio and TV spots as well as written material aimed at helping the public be prepared in case of nuclear attack. A lot of listeners might be too young to remember the old civil defense duck and cover propaganda films and cartoons. They seem quaint now, but their message was clear. Tragedy could strike at any moment. There were also drills in schools where kids practiced ducking under their desks in the case of a nuclear attack. The threat of the atomic bomb pervaded American culture in a serious way. In 1952, Truman signed another executive order that would ensure the continuation of essential government functions in the event of a disaster such as a nuclear strike against Washington, D.C. If, say, the Russians attacked the Capitol, then the president, Congress, and other essential personnel would be prepared to function out of another location. Underground bunker complexes were scouted out or built for use as temporary government headquarters in the case of such an attack. We don't know the location of every government security bunker that was set up during the Cold War, but there are currently at least 100 facilities across the country. A few of these bunkers are publicly known, like the Cheyenne Mountain Complex in Colorado, Raven Rock in Pennsylvania, and Mount Weather, located in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Mount Weather is one of the better-known facilities because of an expose published in 1976 in a magazine known as The Progressive, as well as another investigative piece in Time magazine from 1991. Approximately an hour outside of Washington, D.C., 
The above ground area is an operations and training facility run by FEMA, but carved deep inside the mountain below is an underground city. The hidden underground facility is purported to contain apartments and dorms, cafeterias, hospitals, a power plant and office buildings, communications, its own mass transit, even a small lake fed by underground springs. In the event of nuclear war, declaration of martial law, or other national emergencies, the president, the cabinet, and the rest of the executive branch would attempt to be relocated to the Mount Weather facility first due to its close proximity to the capital. The bunker's ultimate purpose is to be a complete command center in case of a national emergency. It's for this reason data on American citizens is also collected and stored in the facility, as well as information about military and government facilities, energy, agriculture, and manufacturing. According to the Progressive article, Mount Weather's 240 employees run daily scenarios intended to prepare them to handle a wide range of problems associated with both war and domestic political crises. There have been a few times when personnel at Mount Weather were actually prepared to assume governmental powers, including during the 1961 Cuban Missile Crisis and in 1963 when President John Kennedy was assassinated. But the government's ultimate fear, a nuclear attack on the U.S., never materialized. Because of the Cold War, the government's focus in the 1950s and 60s had been on preparing for a foreign attack. But after a series of massive hurricanes and earthquakes during the 1960s and early 70s, their focus necessarily shifted to natural disaster relief. As these priorities changed, so too did the FCDA. By the 1970s, the FCDA had undergone many name changes and reorganizations, which in turn weakened their power. Budgets were trimmed as well. The U.S. was deep in the throes of a recession now that the post-World War II economic boom had ended. Public fear of nuclear attack had also waned. It was beginning to look like a nuclear war with the Soviets wouldn't happen after all. But the government still had stockpiles of emergency supplies and resources, as well as trained experts who knew what to do in a disaster. So, in April 1979, President Jimmy Carter created FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. This new agency brought together more than 100 programs from across the government, including the Federal Insurance Administration, the National Fire Prevention and Control Administration, and the National Weather Service Community Preparedness Program. Once again, the organization wasn't voted on by Congress, but established by executive order. The agency's primary purpose was to respond to natural disasters, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes. The general public welcomed the new agency. For many people, FEMA was the only way they could buy flood insurance. But there may be more to FEMA than meets the eye. According to Wired Magazine's article, The Secret History of FEMA, quote, few in the public understood that much of FEMA's resources went instead to its primary mission, coordinating the nation's post-apocalypse efforts, and that the majority of its funding and a third of its workforce was actually hidden in the nation's classified black budget. The agency's real focus and its real budget was known to only 20 members of Congress, end quote. At the time, some estimated that $1.3 billion was being spent on activities that didn't relate to natural disaster at all. 
Unbeknownst to the public, FEMA had retained at least one aspect of its predecessor, the FCDA, an emphasis on preparing for nuclear disaster. FEMA was still in its infancy as an organization in 1981, when the newly elected president, Ronald Reagan, began ramping up emergency preparedness efforts. The Cold War was still raging, and tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union were still considered a threat. In December 1981, President Reagan created the Emergency Mobilization Preparedness Board, or EMPB, consisting of representatives from 22 federal agencies. Their job was to study emergency preparedness and make policy suggestions to the president, the National Security Council, and FEMA. The National Security Council, or NSC, is chaired by the president, and it's the main forum for considering national policy and foreign policy matters. Incidentally, it was also established by President Truman back in 1947. The EMPB established itself as quite a powerful group. In fact, it was soon criticized for overreaching its power and militarizing the nation's emergency management programs. National Security Affairs professor Diana Reynolds commented later that, quote, by forming the EMPB, Ronald Reagan made it possible for a small group of people under the authority of the NSC to wield enormous power. They, in turn, used this executive authority to change civil defense planning into a military-slash-police version of civil security, end quote. After the break we'll explore how emergency services changed in the 1980s when FEMA and other government defense agencies began looking for enemies not just outside the U.S., but also inside. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. When FEMA was created in 1979, its focus, at least publicly, was on preparing for and recovering from natural disasters. But in the 1980s, its focus seemed to shift to the management of internal crises. And this is where Ollie North comes in. Exactly. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North was a U.S. military aide who was appointed deputy director of the NSC during Reagan's administration. In 1985 and 86, North arranged several illegal sales of weapons to Iran in exchange for the release of seven U.S. hostages and then used the money to fund the Contras, a Nicaraguan revolutionary group. This became known as the Iran-Contra scandal. North was found guilty on three felony charges in 1989, though he was ultimately cleared in 1990. Some say he was merely acting as a fall guy to protect several other government officials who knew more about the scandal than they revealed, including President Reagan himself. The Iran-Contra scandal is North's primary claim to infamy, but before that, from 1982 to 1984, North was assigned to the EMPB. Here, he worked with FEMA to develop plans for implementing martial law in the event of a national emergency. 
Let's talk a bit about martial law. The term comes up quite a lot in conspiracy theories about FEMA detention camps. That's true. By definition, martial law happens in an emergency when civilian law enforcement is unable to maintain public order and safety. But what makes it tricky is that it's invoked by the federal government and enforced by the national military. Yes, and personal freedom is something we Americans take very seriously. The Constitution guarantees us specific rights and freedoms to protect us from overreaching government control. Exactly. It's the principle on which our country was founded. But martial law overrides these constitutional liberties and protections. In fact, during a period of martial law, the government can impose its will on citizens through military force, regardless of constitutional laws. That's not something American citizens will give up lightly. Not at all. In fact, according to a 1987 article in the Miami Herald, the EMPB was exploring martial law plans that would, quote, suspend the Constitution in the event of a national crisis, such as nuclear war, violent and widespread internal dissent, or national opposition to U.S. military invasion abroad, end quote. Well, this is beginning to sound quite different from what FEMA was created for. Certainly a long way from the original idea of protecting Americans from the aftermath of localized hurricanes, floods, and earthquakes. Naturally, people were upset about this. They were. Ollie North had to create a strategy to control internal dissent and opposition to this new agenda. That's how Rex 84 was born. Short for Readiness Exercise 1984, Rex 84 was a collaboration with the NSC and FEMA. It was a plan to suspend the Constitution, declare martial law, and place military commanders in charge of state and local governments in the event of a national disaster. Rex 84 was created with a specific alleged threat in mind. Namely, communist forces in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and other Central American countries. During the 1980s, the U.S. was afraid these forces would move north and create footholds in America. Rex 84 would give the U.S. government the right to detain large numbers of people who were deemed subversives or threats to national security such as the estimated 400,000 undocumented Central American refugees and immigrants living in the United States at that time. So the idea was that if the United States wanted to invade Central America and there was opposition by these immigrants, they would be rounded up and detained so they couldn't cause trouble. The EMPB was allegedly compiling lists of potential enemies, like these immigrants, for use in the event of a situation like this. That's nothing new. J. Edgar Hoover, Joseph McCarthy, and Richard Nixon were all known to have kept comprehensive lists of personal and political enemies. True, but the 1980s brought another innovation into the mix, digital technology. Using a sophisticated software for its day, known as Promise, Oliver North was able to track all potential security threats to the United States. Wired magazine reported that North used a command center in the White House, connected by computer link to a larger command center in the Justice Department. Wired points out, quote, using Promise, 
North could have drawn up lists of anyone ever arrested for a political protest, for example, or anyone who had ever refused to pay their taxes, end quote. Many people were afraid FEMA and the NSC would create targeted lists and use them to round up dissenters after declaring martial law. But to declare martial law and put that plan into action, these organizations would have to wait until a natural disaster or an attack happened. Or manufacture one. You mean create a war or a disaster on purpose? Well, the government certainly has the power and resources to do so. And according to certain conspiracy theorists, this might have already happened on September 11, 2001. We'll be talking more about that in part two. However, if this hypothetical disaster were to happen, the president and other top-level government officials would be helicoptered off to Mount Weather or another bunker complex. But we civilians would be sent on a different path. And plans for this were put into motion during the 1980s. FEMA created a top-secret plan, Project 908, to be conducted with the help of the FBI. It was all part of a bigger crisis relocation planning program, It calculated how to evacuate the nation's major cities in case of emergency. Undercover FBI agents checked out warehouses, casinos, manufacturing plants, furniture stores, retail spaces, even bingo halls and Elks lodges. These were all considered possible sites where evacuees could be sent. According to The Secret History of FEMA, they signed secret agreements with business owners to, quote, rent their facilities for nuclear war. Lengthy addendums to the contracts outlined required utility and infrastructure upgrades needed to support crisis operations, the costs of which were fully paid by the government, end quote. Almost 150 million Americans, out of a then population of 225 million, would be evacuated from 400 high-risk cities. They would then be taken to the rented buildings in smaller surrounding towns. FEMA estimated that 65% of the population could be evacuated in one day, and 95% could be evacuated in three days. Reminiscent of the duck-and-cover propaganda from the 1950s, in 1978, a 25-minute film called Protection in the Nuclear Age was distributed across the country. There was also a series of 15 newspaper articles written by FEMA. Part of the instructions told citizens to flee to their host areas, these surrounding towns with pre-planned evacuation sites. Each host area was expected to absorb five times its normal peacetime population in evacuees. After registering, all evacuees would be directed to and housed in the various venues acquired during Project 908. Some would even be taken in by local families. After everyone was in their specified buildings, construction crews would pile dirt against the walls of the pre-identified buildings, turning them into fallout shelters. They would do this using bulldozers and equipment already in these specified towns. FEMA had calculated that most parts of the country had enough heavy equipment to construct and fortify shelters in three days. Conditions would be cramped, food, medicine, and provisions often scarce, money not immediately available, but it was all still doable. On paper, maybe. But in reality? Many of the local host areas looked at the buildings, some several stories high, and scratched their heads at how Washington bureaucrats expected them to bury the massive shelters under enough dirt in just a few days. FEMA's plan was optimistic at best. 
It was a good thing that by the late 1980s, it turned out we didn't need those fallout shelters after all. In November 1989, the border between East and West Berlin was opened. Over the next year, the Berlin Wall, one of the most powerful and enduring symbols of the Cold War, was reduced to rubble. As the Cold War ended, the U.S. realized that the threat of nuclear war was fading and the influence of communism in Europe and Latin America was weakening. President George H.W. Bush made a speech on September 11, 1991, in which he emphasized building a lasting peace between the United States and Russia. Actually, President Bush made a few speeches in 1991 containing a phrase that resonated with many die-hard conspiracy theorists. In his 1991 State of the Union address, he encouraged America to strive for, quote, a new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom, and the rule of law, end quote a new world order. The president really seemed to be expressing his hopes for worldwide peace during a critical time in America. Or maybe it was more ominous that he was, as some allege, referencing the hidden agenda the government had already set in motion. Many conspiracy theorists saw this as a defining moment when their fears of globalization, open borders, and widespread gun control were coming true. Still, the early 1990s seemed like a hopeful time, a time of change. Relations with Russia were warming, the threat of communism was easing, and the first Iraq war had just ended. At the same time, FEMA was coming under fire. Many of the agency's secrets about its bunker complexes and evacuation facilities became public knowledge through investigative articles written in newspapers like the Washington Post. One of the secrets that came out was exactly how much money had been spent on FEMA operations. An article in the Christian Science Monitor put the number at $12 billion dedicated just to projects to protect the U.S. from nuclear attacks. Billions more were secretly spent on the underground bunkers for the government and military. The real question was where all these billions of dollars came from. Many conspiracy theorists claim that there are elite, immensely wealthy investors behind FEMA. They claim these shadowy figures have a personal interest in how FEMA spends their money and are behind the scenes controlling the purse strings. Whether that's true or not, in the 1990s, as the United States seemed poised to enjoy peace and prosperity on many fronts, FEMA realized it didn't need so many resources dedicated to defense. It shifted its focus back to its original intended purpose, natural disasters. The agency's 300 Mobile Emergency Response Support, or MERS, vehicles were decommissioned for use in natural disaster responses. Unfortunately, the vehicles were too high-tech to be much help for this purpose. Their sophisticated equipment wasn't compatible with normal handheld radios and phones needed to communicate with first responders. FEMA's inadequacy for aiding in natural disasters would only become more strongly apparent in the wake of Hurricane Andrew, a Category 5 hurricane that struck the Bahamas and Florida in mid-August 1992. When it was over, 65 people were dead. Dade County's head of emergency preparedness in a press conference begged, quote, Where the hell is the cavalry on this one? We need food. We need water. We need people, 
end quote. But FEMA was nowhere to be found. We'll talk more about the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew after a quick break. Now, back to the story. In 1992, Hurricane Andrew was the most destructive hurricane ever to hit the United States, a record it held for 25 years. It was also the costliest hurricane to make landfall anywhere in the U.S. until Katrina in 2005. Hurricane Andrew destroyed more than 63,500 homes and damaged 124,000 others, ultimately causing $27.3 billion in damage. As with any major natural disaster, FEMA was mobilized, but the agency waited three days to send aid to the people of South Florida. President George H.W. Bush and White House officials claimed a series of miscommunications led to the delay. The backlash against FEMA was voluminous. As a result, during President Bill Clinton's administration from 1993 to 2000, FEMA went through another revamp. Its budget was slashed, disaster relocation sites were abandoned, and MERS units were successfully repurposed for domestic use. Many of the programs set up during the Cold War were transferred into general disaster preparedness efforts. With its new, streamlined organizational structure, FEMA performed well during the Midwest floods of 1993, the 1994 Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles, and the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Not surprisingly, FEMA acquired its highest approval ratings ever and became known primarily to the public as a natural disaster response agency. In 1996, President Clinton even transferred FEMA to cabinet status, meaning the director of the agency reported directly to the president. He and the nation hoped that the changes were a step in the right direction for the once struggling agency. For many years, uh, FEMA had been regarded almost universally as an agency not up to the job. And I'm very proud that under James Lee Witt's management and with all of your help, FEMA is now a model disaster relief agency and in some corners uh, thought to be by far the most successful part of the federal government. FEMA's preparedness was put to the ultimate test on September 11, 2001. Four commercial airplanes were hijacked by Al-Qaeda extremists. Two were flown into New York City's World Trade Center towers. One was flown into the Pentagon, and one crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. Almost 3,000 people lost their lives that day. Earlier, we talked about Mount Weather. That facility was finally employed in real-world use during the 9-11 attacks. Helicopter after helicopter of federal officials reportedly descended upon the facility in the Blue Ridge Mountains. The place needed a little updating as it was using computers from the 1980s. Vice President Dick Cheney was rushed to a bunker deep under the White House called the Presidential Emergency Operations Center. But there was uncertainty about President Bush's location after Air Force One's takeoff from Florida, where the president had a scheduled appearance at an elementary school. Concealing his whereabouts was considered necessary for security reasons. But with the president off the radar, it was unknown for a few hours after the attacks who, if anyone, was running the country. Communication from government officials was scant until 11.45 a.m. when President Bush landed on Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. 
The government's swift evacuation proved that if necessary, it was possible to keep the government running from Mount Weather. The decades-old plan was a success. In the days after 9-11, FEMA operations suffered only a few hiccups. On the surface, things seemed to be running smoothly. The Office of Homeland Security, precursor to the Department of Homeland Security, was launched in response to the attacks. According to Wired, quote, the resulting reorganization was the largest government restructuring since the beginning of the Cold War, when the National Security Act of 1947 had created the modern Pentagon, the CIA, and other entities, end quote. FEMA was absorbed into the Department of Homeland Security in 2002. The thinking was that by putting FEMA under Homeland Security's umbrella, the agency would be able to make use of resources from other offices and thus be stronger. Unfortunately, it didn't go as expected. With the reorganization, FEMA lost its cabinet status and with it, direct communication with the president. FEMA seemed less effective, not more. Morale was damaged and the agency's operations were weakened and scattered. Also, because there was a new focus on terrorism, other aspects of FEMA's duties having to do with natural disaster preparedness fell by the wayside. The secret history of FEMA reveals that there was concern among employees of the organization. Quote, in the summer of 2004, a year before Hurricane Katrina, Senior FEMA officials were warning of the nation's need to restore balance between the new focus on counterterrorism and more run-of-the-mill natural disasters, end quote. Fateful words considering the hurricane that happened the following year. But their warnings weren't heeded. The agency's focus stayed on terrorism. In the early 2000s, FEMA conducted several exercises among its staff to test the agency's readiness in the event of another terrorist attack like 9-11. One exercise involved almost 2,500 federal officials from 45 departments and agencies testing emergency preparedness procedures for a scenario much like the events of 9-11. The team spent two days at 100 alternate relocation sites running through the nation's response to a coordinated attack. Michael Brown, the head of FEMA, as well as Undersecretary of the Department of Homeland Security, was very optimistic about the operations. He was quoted as saying that there has never been an exercise of this nature or of this magnitude, even during the Cold War. But Brown, a former horse breeder, didn't have the needed management experience to run an organization of FEMA's scope. One FEMA union leader complained that the agency was now managed by, quote, politically connected contractors and novice employees with little background or knowledge, end quote. According to The Secret History of FEMA, the results of the exercises and drills in the early 2000s revealed that FEMA was not in good shape to handle disasters other than a terrorist attack. This lack of preparedness would prove fatal. In August 2005, Hurricane Katrina churned its way through the Gulf of Mexico towards the United States. It hit Florida first, and then a few days later, on the morning of August 29th, the Category 4 hurricane made landfall in Mississippi and Louisiana. Winds were recorded in excess of 170 miles per hour. 
The people of New Orleans thought they had dodged a bullet as the city had been spared a direct hit. But over the next few days, the levee system, overburdened by rain and the storm surge, began to give way. By the 30th of August, 80% of the city was underwater. By September 1st, as the world watched, an estimated 30,000 residents of New Orleans were seeking shelter under the damaged roof of the Superdome, and an additional 25,000 had gathered at the convention center. Very soon, the shortage of food and drinkable water became a serious issue, and temperatures reached 90 degrees. To people on the ground, the federal response to the disaster, especially by FEMA, was too slow and woefully inadequate. Here's FEMA Director Michael Brown responding to the criticism. People are getting the help they need, and I understand the frustrations that are being expressed by some of the local emergency managers and the mayor and others. Uh, this is an ongoing disaster. Ultimately, more than 1,800 people died in the hurricane and its aftermath. FEMA was widely criticized for mishandling the emergency response effort during and after Hurricane Katrina. In using most of its resources to prepare for acts of terrorism, the agency was completely ill-equipped to deal with natural disasters such as a hurricane and its aftermath. The idea is to get help faster to more people in those first hours after a disaster. The hours post-Katrina in which Homeland Security officials seem to have been confused or dropped the ball completely. Chertoff says 1,500 new workers will be hired as a special full-time emergency response force, and a new system will be put in place to report on disasters as they happen. More reforms are in the pipeline. One Homeland Security official told me this moves the process forward a few feet, with many more feet yet to go. Lisa Meyer, Alexandria, Virginia. Hurricane Katrina was certainly a tragedy, and FEMA's response certainly could have been handled better. On September 12th, Two weeks after the hurricane initially hit, Michael Brown resigned as the director of FEMA. It became apparent to everyone that the agency's focus on terrorism had been a short-sighted mistake. But if what conspiracy theorists allege is true, it isn't just terrorism preparation that's diverting FEMA's resources. It's possible that FEMA's precious resources are being used to prepare for something much more sinister. This week, we've discussed the EMPB's martial law plan and subversives lists, the secret underground bunkers set up for continuity of government, President George H.W. Bush's speech alluding to a new world order, scandals surrounding FEMA and its use of funds, and the government's response to 9-11. Putting these facts together, a scenario emerges. Conspiracy theory number one. FEMA plans to use its immense power to manufacture a national disaster similar to what happened on 9-11. This will, in turn, give the agency authority to declare martial law. During the crisis, the government will continue safely inside its underground bunkers. Meanwhile, according to conspiracy theory number two, in the wake of the disaster, Americans already targeted by FEMA as subversives will be rounded up and forced into detention camps or killed if they resist. Could something like this really happen in America? Next week, we'll break down the many aspects of the scenario and dig deeper into the conspiracy theories as well as the facts that support them.
Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And join us next week for part two as we dive deeper into the alleged hidden agenda of FEMA and its death camps. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Kristen Kirby and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.